Amen. Eyes for knowing. Eyes for knowing. Well, as I was praying this week about God, about what God wanted me to do, wanted me to speak on, a pattern started to be revealed to me that, again, I believe is a very powerful truth and is something for you to apply to your life to unlock the things of heaven in your life. Life is not about earning your destiny. Life is about unlocking it. You cannot earn anything because it's already been given to you. You cannot earn anything that's already been given to you. You simply unlock a heavenly reality into an earthly realm. Authority has been given to you. Gifts have been given to you. You don't earn authority in the name of Jesus. You don't earn spiritual gifts in the name of Jesus. What happens is you walk into what Jesus has earned for you and manage the thing that he has freely given. You manage what Jesus has freely given to you. And how you manage what has been freely purchased and given to the church, how you manage what he gives you is your act of worship. Why is tithing an act of worship? It's managing what he gave. And you can tell how much you love God by how you steward what he gives you. You can tell how much someone loves God by how they steward their day-to-day -day walk. There's a lot of people that say a salvation prayer that don't steward a thing. And that may be a little confrontational, but I don't mind the confrontation. How you steward what Jesus freely purchased for you is your worship. There's no getting around that. When I look at someone who says they're saved and they look nothing like Jesus, I call that poor management. I call that lack of worship. When I see you not necessarily perfect, but striving for God, not in a way thinking you're going to earn it, but just you are passionately in love and seeking God, that is good management. I want to manage what's been given to me for the glory of God. You can tell how much someone loves God by how they manage their salvation. You can tell how much someone loves God in their obedience because love is action, not just words. It's one thing to say you love God. It's another thing to see that you love God. Matthew 6.10 says this, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, I say this all the time, as earth as it is in heaven. Understanding this passage, I believe, is a key to everything in the scripture. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. It's been given to you and it exists somewhere. Where does it exist? In heavenly realms. In heavenly realities. Everything you need has been gotten, it's been done, it's been finished. Jesus says it is finished when he died on the cross. That means everything that you will ever need exists somewhere. So it's not God let me get it. It's how do I steward this life to unlock something that exists in heaven so I experience the thing in heaven in earth. Unlock three things so you can experience heaven on earth. Experience the kingdom of God on earth as it already is in heavenly realms. Does that make sense? Yet the church teaches deal with life until you get to heaven. 
The church teaches you're going to die one day and get to heaven, and until you get to heaven, deal with the trials of life. I say manage the trials of life to unlock those realities now because God did not die for me so that I could be miserable while on this earth. He died for me to resurrect me so that I could live as in heaven right now in these earthly realities. So when, earth, when, when the trials of this world come at me, I do not define my worth by trial. I define my worth by my heavenly reality. So when a trial comes, I treat the trial on earth as it is in heaven. How is a trial in heaven? Overcome. Okay. I don't want to deal with life. I want to manage my eternal life. Because if I die when I said yes to Jesus, I want to live in my resurrected new life in Christ, not when my flesh goes, but right now. Amen? Now the question is, how do I unlock these things practically? Tonight, what I'm going to dive into is a very important key to unlocking heaven. And I'm going to start in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19. To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How many of you want to be filled with all the fullness? Well, it says to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. Let me just keep that up there. Let me say it in another way. Know the love of Christ in a way that goes above knowing. Know the love of Christ in a way that is above knowing. This is supposed to get confusing, by the way. Let me say it one more time. Know God in a way that you can't know. We read that. Know God in a way that passes knowing. Have you ever paid attention to how perplexing that is? There's, there, the, the scripture is talking about two different ways of knowing in this passage. There is knowing God. Everyone say knowing God. And there is the knowledge of the things of God. There's knowing God. And then there is the knowledge of the things of God. You can know or understand all the things of God and never know God. Hashtag church people. Is that, is that, is that too much? Not these church people. There is a knowing that is intellectual, and there is a knowing that is experiential. I can know all about jet skiing, but I can't know it like someone who actually does it, right? I can know everything there is about rock climbing, but if you know me, I ain't going to know that by experiencing it. I'll read about it, I'll look at pictures, I'll praise the people that do it and call them lunatics. But I am not going to get caught rock climbing, right? There's a knowing that is intellectual and there's a knowing that is experiential. Religious people can know God intellectually but never know God experientially. Lost people can know God intellectually and never know God experientially. You talk to most atheists and agnostics, they know more Bible than Christians. Demons. 
Demons know God intellectually and refuse to know him experientially. Can we talk about that for a minute? Satan knows God. He chooses not to experience relationship. Okay? Just because you can quote scripture doesn't mean you know him in a way that results in being filled with fullness. And that is, I believe, one of the biggest strongholds that people hold on to God into a knowing that is only intellectual. And we embrace this stronghold of, if I cannot find it in my Bible, it can't be God. Are we willing to believe that the New Testament is still very well alive and being written on the souls of our experience? On, our, on, on the experience of living for God right now. Because my scripture says that there is not enough pages to contain all the things that Jesus did. Which means there are things he still wants to do that we cannot find in these pages. But what the church has done has taught us, if you can't find it intellectually, then you, there is no permission to experience it. I'll give an example. The scripture says, if you are in need of healing, then call upon the elders of church by the laying on of hands and they will be healed. And what intellectual knowing does is say healing cannot happen outside of an elder laying hands on you. Say that to Colleen. For those of you that who not, I, I reference her all the time, I'll reference more people. She, she was crippled for 20 years in a wheelchair, and one day before service, we were in here doing sound check, worship broke out, she stood up, and she's been out of the wheelchair for over a year and a half now. Say that to Devin, who was diagnosed with cancer, went in, and when they went to find it, it was gone. Amen. Say that to Brayden, Renee and Brian's daughter, who they found the tumor, they went in this, this past week to find it, and it was gone. None of it was by the laying on of hands. But what happens is we'll refuse to accept that because it wasn't written like that. Not understanding the reason it was written like that was because they were bringing order to a disorderly church. And that's what they needed. The principle is not do it like that. The principle is make sure there's order in the house. Right? We think if it's not in the Bible, it can't be of God. But the Bible actually says something very different. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. No, the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God. His plan that was previously hidden, even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. That is what the scriptures mean when they say, No eye has seen. No ear has heard. No mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Stop right there. No eye has seen. No ear has heard. No mind has imagined what God has prepared for you if you love him. Meaning there are things prepared for you that you cannot see, hear, or read in the Bible. Now, hang on. If you're getting offended by that, 
I, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to give this some glory, so just, you know, you know, shut your religious lips up and just listen to me. <laughs> That's going to get me in trouble. I don't, it's okay, though. Verse 10. <laughs> but it was to us that God revealed these things by his Spirit, for his Spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No eye has seen, no ears heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Yet we only allow ourselves to experience, to experience something that was written. And we don't allow us to experience things that has never been seen. That the scripture says that the Holy Spirit will show us. The Bible, here's the glory to the word, or this word, the words Jesus. This is simply a testament to the word. Can I dabble there? This, the word of God is not this. The word of God is, is Jesus. The spoken word of God that became flesh. So you can see how the word looks like in a fleshly dwelling. This is an Old and New Testament to the workings of the word of God. There's even scripture that says angels go when they hear the word of God. So when we are walking in the word of God, the way you fight your spiritual battles is you realize when you speak the word, angels go fight. <clears throat> the Bible is a way to confirm whether or not the thing you're experiencing lines up with God's character. And that's how you know if you're experiencing something that has not been written, if it's truly of God or not. Because if it's of God, it will align with the testament to who God is. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. In God's character, I think many times... We try to impose character on God that's actually not his character. I want you to think about, I like to call this language Christianese. Language that Christians make up that actually are contrary to the word. One of the Christianese phrases that I'm going to show you is actually out of line with God's character is God is coming like a lion. Yeah, some of you just look at me like I'm crazy. This is overly used, and I'm going to show you it's overly wrong. The first issue with this is the lion he is, is the lion he created, not the fallen character of a lion after Genesis. Because when we think of a lion, we think of, you're not going to make fun of me, like a, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> You know, the, the, that's a bad lion. You wouldn't be scared of that thing. We think of a lion that goes after prey. We think of the roaring lion. We think of the one that, you know, tears apart meat and goes after all these things. If you read the scripture, that's actually not the, the first creation of a lion. Isaiah actually prophesies the restoration through Jesus in Isaiah 11 that says lions will eat hay like cows. that the wolf and the lamb will lay together. We think to be like the lion of God is to be a kind of bull that devours people rather than put, puts peace over them. People have been taught at first he came like a lamb, but he's coming like a lion. And they use Revelation to teach that. But that's where we get it wrong. Can I show you? Revelation chapter 5, verse 4 through 10. Or, yeah, or 4 through 9. I broke down weeping with intense sorrow because there was 
found no one worthy to break open the scroll and read its contents. Then one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the mighty lion of Judah's tribe. So this is where we get lion. You understand? Watch this. The root of David. He has conquered. He is the worthy one who can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw not a lion going to open the scroll, a lamb. I saw a young lamb standing before the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the 24 elders. He appeared to have been slaughtered but was now alive. He had seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to the ends of the earth. Remember, this is a dream. Okay? So stop trying to look for creatures with seven horns. I find it funny, people, that look for the signs of revelation of when the end time's coming. It's a dream. Stop looking for the literal. It's symbolism. Okay. Just chew on that. And I'll tell you why you're wrong when you tell me I'm wrong. Verse 7. I saw the young lamb approach the throne and take the scroll from the right hand of the one who sat there. When the 24 elders and four living creatures saw that the lamb had taken the scroll, they fell face down at the feet of the lamb and worshipped him. Each of them had a harp and golden bowls, brimming full of sweet fragrant incense, which are the prayers of God's holy lovers. They were all singing this new song of praise to the lamb. Because you were slaughtered for us, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Your blood was the price paid to redeem us. You purchased us to bring us to God out of every tribe, language, people, group, and nation. His identity was lion. His character was lamb. So the idea of God is coming like a lion is actually an incomplete idea, is what I'm getting at. Christians cannot be identified as lions without character of a lamb. Christians devour people instead of making peace and showing love. Lambs who are lions... Turn the other cheek, not bite off other arms. God is coming back like a, like a lion, but with the character of lamb. Let me, let me read verse 10, Revelation uh, 5.10. You have chosen us to serve our God and formed us into a kingdom of priests who reign on the earth. The problem is, priests today in the church, we call them just preachers and clergy, which is ridiculous. You know who the priests are? If you believe in God and you say you believe in Jesus, guess who are the priests? Every single one of us. Priests have become like, priests have become lion and not lion lambs. We have adopted this, the idea of a lion that devours prey instead of lions that eat hay. That rhymed. I'm, I'm, I'm about to bust out a rap. <laughs> Not really. You want to know why the lost hate the church? Because they're scared to get devoured. They're looking for a royal priesthood, but they found lions that are fallen instead of lions redeemed in godlike character. Are, are y'all following this? It's not just he's coming back like a lion. He's actually coming back identified as lion, but with the character of lamb. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what the church has done is we have put lion above the lamb. But he is actually lion and lamb. 
And the reason we've come up with these identifiers, is this okay? Okay. It's because we read and we get all this head knowledge without ever experiencing a relationship where a lion-lamb character is revealed. God says, know me. Not just by head knowledge, but by experiencing me through relationship. Because when you experience him through relationship, you will not meet a God who wants to devour you. You're going to meet a God who is going to have lamb-like character to meet you where you're at and pull you right back into the flock. The question is, how do we experience the fullness of God and be filled with it in this lion-lamb God that we worship? How do I get full with fullness? Just like it says in Ephesians. Let's read verse 10 of 1 Corinthians again. It was to us that God revealed these things by his spirit. His spirit searches out what? Everything. And shows us God's deep secrets. God reveals unseen things by his spirit. His spirit searches out everything and shows us secrets that are not written on page. So if his spirit is searching out everything and reveals secrets that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no one has ever experienced before, then we have to make intentional moves in our lives to not waste a moment giving your knowing of your experience to things that the Holy Spirit wants nothing to do with. Do I need to say that again? All right, I'll, I'll, I'll try. If the Holy Spirit is searching out everything and he wants to show us the secrets that can only be revealed by him, what secrets? No eye has seen, no ear has heard. He wants you to walk in the fullness of God. The fullness of God cannot be read about. There's, if you think that, you know, I don't know, 3,000 pages are the fullness of God, you've got a small image of God. He says, the Spirit searches all this out to reveal it to you. So, if He searches it out to reveal it to you, don't waste a moment giving your experience of knowing to something that the Holy Spirit wants nothing to do with. Because there are some things that God never wanted you to experience. And what we've done is we've adopted the lie of let me experience it to see if it's good. But if you're relational with God, he will actually show you the things he wants you to experience and shows you things he never wants you to touch. Adam was never meant to experience full knowing. Is this too deep tonight? Are y'all following? Adam was never meant to experience full knowing. He was meant to feast on knowing God by relationship. He forfeited fullness of God for fullness of head knowledge. The way to knowing has everything to do with where your eyes are focused and set. 
In the garden conversation with Satan and Eve, I want you to look at what it says in Genesis 3, 3 through 6. It is only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. What does that say? God wanted them to experience everything except one thing, tasting of that fruit. God said, you must not eat it. You must not even touch it. If you do, you'll die. Verse 4, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. Now watch this. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Pause right there. The enemy is deceiving them into thinking there's more knowing than the knowing you're experiencing. And he starts talking to what the eyes will be open to. Look at verse 6. The woman was convinced. She what? Saw that the tree was beautiful. Now think about that for a second. Before this moment, she never took the time to see if the tree that God said don't touch was good looking or not. Knowing the Lord satisfied Adam and Eve. But the moment the enemy started suggesting there was something more that her eyes could see, she looked at the one thing that God said, do not experience, and she says, that experience looks good. She saw the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. What are the two different types of knowing? Knowing by relationship and knowing with head knowledge. In a moment, she was ready to sacrifice relationship for all the things to know of the mind. So she took some of the fruit. She ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. This was a deception. They knew God. But Satan suggested that knowledge intellectually was fullness, when in reality, it separated them from the fullness. What fullness? Intimacy. And it all had to do with Satan suggested, open your eyes. Why are eyes such a big issue? Matthew 6, 22-23. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. Why y'all scared? We're in the presence of God. That was just God saying, pay attention. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. Light in the scripture is knowledge. So he says the thing that brings knowing to your body is what you set your eyes on. The thing that provides knowing is the thing you set your eyes on. Now what's interesting is that word body in Hebrew is not talking about just a physical body. It's talking about your physical body. It's talking about the spiritual idea of who you are. 
And it's talking about the number of people in a group or society. Or another word for it might be church. The people of God. So it's, listen to me, y'all need to pay attention to me, not what's going on up here. What you set your eyes to brings either a godly knowing or a separated from God knowing, not just for you, but even to the corporate body you're a part of. That's why a body is only as strong as the weakest member. Why do you think in Acts, when Ananias and Sapphira dropped down dead because they were lying, why do you think it happened? Because they were going to bring issue to the body. What we have to understand as a church is any church that lives in the idea of, I like going to that church so I can get lost, is actually contrary to being a strong body. Because people who get lost can't be called out on where they're weak. And if, they, and if you can't grow someone in where they're weak, then that's as strong as the corporate body will ever get. You can direct your eyes on heavenly things, which bring the knowing for fullness, or set your eyes on dark things, or what the Bible calls dark ignorance, which causes you to settle for lesser knowing. We settle for lesser knowing when we set our eyes on things that are not of heaven. Are, are y'all y'all tracking? Okay. Colossians 3, 2 through 3. Set your mind on things above, not on things in the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You cannot find hidden things that have not been revealed if you only set your eyes in this world or set your eyes on a manuscript. Your life is hidden in knowing the fullness of God. And intellectual knowledge is not the way to fullness. Experiencing relationship, that was me, experiencing relationship is the way to fullness. Your relationship with God can actually be hindered with what you fix your eyes on. And you can unlock heaven when you fix your eyes on the one who invited you into relationship because your life is hidden in that relationship. So stop settling for relationships with anything of lesser value. It's not about behavior management. It's I don't want to give my gaze to anything less than who God is and what God is. I'm going to read Colossians again. But I'm going to read it in the Passion Translation and really explain this out. In verse 1, it says, Christ's resurrection is your resurrection too. This is why we are to yearn for all that is above. Yet when you talk to especially the American church, our goals have everything to do with what's... Nothing wrong with goals. But are they aligned under what your gaze is on? 
For that's where Christ sits enthroned at the place of all power, honor, and authority. The church has been hindered because we fix our eyes on the resurrection of Christ by way of knowledge of the resurrection. Rather than fixing our eyes on the resurrection of Christ by way of experiencing resurrection. Everyone can talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Not many experience the resurrection for you. Can you throw that verse back up there, Leah? Verse 1. Christ's resurrection is your resurrection. That means there's stuff that you had that caused you to be dead at a pause. You couldn't go forward. There's bitterness. There's hurt. There's pain, there's trauma, and you know what God says? You can know about my resurrection, or you can experience it for yourself. And there's an issue when Christians are still dealing with trauma from 20 years ago, and you claim you know resurrection power. Because what happens is we say, God, take me out of my past, and God says, it's finished. You getting out of that pass is when you're going to start to put your eyes on me to experience what you know. You know how to experience what you know? When you get, when there's an opportunity to move forward, you don't say yes or no to the opportunity based off of a past trauma. You say yes or no to the opportunity based off the leading of the Holy Spirit. When you fix your eyes on things above, you unlock heaven in such a way that your dead places and dead in places actually resurrect from pointless to purpose. You can get sick and fix your eyes on sickness. Or you can fix your eyes on, I'm going to get through this and God's going to use it as a testimony for goodness. But we don't, but we don't do that because we don't want to be proven wrong by our experience. When really what happens is when you fix your eyes on relationship, you experience the thing that you had doubt about. I don't know if this is clear or not. Okay. Yearn for all that's above. I choose to set my gaze on resurrected seated position rather than the dead places that are stopping me. Ephesians 2.6 says it like this. He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated, past tense, you are seated with him in heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. The way you respond to life tells me if you fix your eyes on seated position because of your resurrection or if you still direct your life with a gaze on your dead places. You're seated with Christ in heavenly realms. Therefore, when trials come your way, why are you still treating the trials as if they have more power than your seated position? Can I prove it to you? You get sick, you get hurt, you get something that happens, and the first thing you say is, I need to get to church. There is nothing more powerful at church than your living room when you understand you're seated. I see a day where people start understanding this so much where you don't come to church to get healed, you come to church to testify. Amen. 
I'm about to dance. I choose to set my eyes on resurrected seated positions. Watch this in Luke chapter 7. Afterward, verse 36, Simeon, a Jewish religious leader, asked Jesus to his home for dinner. Jesus accepted the invitation. When he went to Simeon's home, he took his place at the table. In the neighborhood, there was an immoral woman of the streets known all to be a prostitute. So let's make sure we set this up. Everyone knew what this woman's sin was. Okay? This right here is why people don't like to come and expose their sins in church because of the story. Like, we experience this all the time. They all knew what her stuff was. She was a prostitute. She gave herself to everyone. When they heard about this, that Jesus was at Simeon's house, she took an exquisite flask made from alabaster, filled it with the most expensive perfume, went right into the home of the Jewish religious leader, and in front of all the guests, she knelt at the feet of Jesus. I want to pause right here. I want you to think about what's going through this woman's mind. She did not think about what they were going to think about her. She didn't say, I can't do that because of my past. I can't do that because of my present sin. All she saw was, the king is right there, and I'm going in. You don't earn your way in. You walk in. Her eyes were not fixated on her present. Her eyes were not fixated on earthly realities. Her eyes were fixated on, that's my king. Before he died, that's my king. And because that's my king, I'm going right in and I'm worshiping my king. See, the, what happens in life is we fix our eyes on realities. We fix our eyes on, on experiences here. And God says, fix your eyes and experience me so that here aligns with a, with a heavenly reality. That's on earth as it is in heaven. She didn't say, I hope these people will accept me. You know what she was doing? She was bringing heaven reality right into the religious leader's room. <laughs> now watch this. Broken and weeping, verse 38, she covered his feet with the tears that fell from her face. She kept crying and drying his feet with her long hair. Over and over she kissed Jesus' feet. And then as an act of worship, she opened her flask and anointed his feet with her costly perfume. When Simeon saw what was happening, he thought, this man can't be a true prophet. If he were really a prophet, he would know what kind of sinful woman's touching him. That's what people think. You hear it all the time from the lost. Like, if I go into that building, it's going to catch on fire. Then you don't know who my God is. He's a, he's a lion with lamb-like character. He doesn't want to devour you. There's an authority in him like a lion. And he handles us like a lamb. This is what he, look at this. When Simeon saw what was happening, he thought this man can't be a true prophet. If he were really a prophet, he would know what kind of sinful woman is touching him. Verse 40, Jesus said, Simeon, I got a word for you. Sometimes you don't want that from Jesus. <laughs> I got something to tell you. Just kidding. You always want it from Jesus. Go ahead, teacher. I want to hear it. So he said, well, it's a story about two men who are deeply in debt. One owed the bank $100,000, the other only owed $10,000. When it was obvious that neither of them would be able to repay their debts, the kind banker graciously wrote off the debts, forgave them all that they owed. Lord, let that happen. Tell me, Simeon, which of the two debtors will be more thankful? Which one would love the banker the most? Simeon answered, well, I suppose it would be the one with the bigger debt that's been forgiven. 
you're right. Jesus agreed. Now, before I go on, I want you to notice what he's doing. He's saying, you know that woman's debt. She's been giving herself to all these men. She's been a prostitute. That's a big debt. You see the parallel he's making? Then he spoke to Simeon about the woman still weeping at his feet. That's funny. She's still at his feet while he's giving a word to Simeon. Do you see this woman kneeling here? She's doing for me what you did not bother to do. When I entered your home as your guest, you didn't think about offering me water to wash the dust off my feet, yet she came into your home and washed my feet with her tears and dried my feet with her hair. You didn't even welcome me into your home with the customary kiss of greeting, but from the moment I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't take the time to anoint my head with fragrant oil, but she anointed my head and my feet with the finest perfume. You see, Simeon missed it because he was focused on the understanding that Jesus was there by way of intellectual understanding. Oh, there's a prophet coming into my house. So he probably did what I would probably done, make sure everything's cleaned up, make sure everything's in order, and is so obsessed with how his place looked for the king that the fact that the king was in the room went past him. He set the table, he opened the door, but his response indicates his knowing was merely an understanding versus a relationship invitation. Now watch this, the next verse, verse 47. This is what Jesus says. She's been forgiven of all her many sins, and this is why she's shown me extravagant love. Be ready to put the scripture back up there. But those who assume they have very little to be forgiven will love me very little. Then Jesus said to the woman at his feet, all your sins are forgiven. I want you to put that, that last scripture up. She has been forgiven of all of her sins. This is why she's been showing me so much extravagant love. She never said she was sorry. She never even confessed a sin. Well, there goes Catholicism. She didn't confess anything. She didn't say she was sorry a thousand times at the altar. She didn't come up to an altar call and cry for four hours and go out and don't do anything about it. She knew she was, for, look at it. She knew she was forgiven, not by the head knowledge of doing the stuff, but by an experiential knowledge of I'm in the presence of the king. And Jesus called that out. He says, I can tell she's, she knows she's forgiven by the way she loves me. Look at it. She's been forgiven of all her sins. She knows she's forgiven, and that's why she's showing such extravagant love. I believe one of the biggest issues of believers is you don't realize you're forgiven because if you did, all you could do is pour out extravagant love. Because you think forgiveness is still waiting for you to confess everything. You want to know how he knows you've confessed it? By how you love him. And I'm not taking away the power of confessing sins. Scripture is very clear that we, it says confess your sins to one another so that you can work together to get out of that. I'm, what I'm saying is it is not a prerequisite or a requirement to experience the same relationship with Jesus as you do after you deal with your sin nature. It's an open invitation because he says, I've already paid the debt. 
her earthly response was directed by her heavenly gaze. She didn't see herself as unworthy to kiss him because of her prostitution. She saw herself as worthy to kiss him because her gaze was on the king and she wanted to know the king instead of knowing of the king. This is okay? Stop waiting to get right to experience that level of intimacy with God. He has made you right. Confession and repentance is not about getting right. It's about aligning your life with right standing. Gosh, y'all are quiet. Look at verse 2, Colossians 3, 2. Feast on all the treasures of the heavenly realm and fill your thoughts with heavenly realities, not with the distractions of the natural realm. Feast on the treasures of the heavenly realm and fill your thoughts with heavenly realities, not with the distractions of the earthly realm. How do you feast on treasures of a heavenly realm? You fix your, day, you fix your gaze there and get it off of here. Because the moment, that's, the moment something happens here that's hurtful or takes you backwards, you confuse here for there. When something comes at you, when a trial comes at you, when you go through a low, you confuse heavenly reality with earthly reality. And before you know it, you're questioning God because your focus is on here and not there. Backwards here does not mean backward there. And if your gaze is here, you're accepting a false identity and a false reality. I'm going backwards here. Why has God forgotten me? That shows me that your gaze is not in heaven because the one in heaven has never forgotten you and is always with you and is very well aware of what you're going through. Kyle, you don't know what I'm going through in this life. I don't need to know what you're going through. The truth is I can give you the biggest key to unlocking heaven. No matter what you go through, get your eyes off of it. Fix your eyes on the one that can heal everything, that can pour out the blessings of heaven on you like no other. You're not accepting this as your truth. Verse 3. Your crucifixion with Christ has severed the tie to this life. And your true life is hidden away in God. And as Christ himself is seen for who he really is, who you really are will be revealed. You're now one with him in his glory. The word crucifixion here literally translates this, death and life hidden in Messiah. So when it says your crucifixion has severed this tie to the life, he's saying your death and life is hidden in Messiah. So because your life is hidden in Messiah, stop trying to find your life in this world because it's tied in heavenly realms. If you find yourself in a why is this happening to me or why can I get ahead mindset, You've realized that you set your gaze on dead things. Because it's, not, it's no longer, why is this happening to me? It's God, this is the trial I'm going through. Show me how to steward it 
Because I'm not accepting this as my destiny. I'm accepting heavenly reality as my destiny. So I will take this trial not as an indication that I have gone backwards, but as an indication that there's a test that I'm going to walk through. I heard someone say this one time. When you take tests in school, the teacher's silent. So when a test comes in this natural realm, and you feel like, why isn't God speaking? Because he's seeing with what you do with what he has already said. Because the test is based off of what he's already shown. Okay. Verse, verse 9. I know I'm going slow, but I, I got it. Is this, is, this, is this sinking in? Okay. Verse 9. Lay aside your old Adam self with its masquerade and disguise. The you that is opposite of God is a masquerade and disguise trying to convince you of that reality and not your heavenly one. For you have acquired new creation life, which is continually being renewed in the likeness of the one who created you, giving you the full revelation of God. The full revelation of God cannot be seen in a text. The full revelation of God is something you experience and you, and you confirm your experience by the character that we read right here. Lay aside your old Adam self. The Aramaic command here says this. Instead of, instead of lay aside your old, it says take off old life. Not wait for it to fall off. Many are waiting for transformation when transformation is simply an intentional action by way of your agreement. You're making an intentional action agreeing with the you that is in heavenly places. So if you still see failure, failure your eyes are on your dead man. It's not, God, when are you going to release it? It's not, God, when are you going to transform me? It's I am transformed and I will move as if I'm in that reality. Which moves you into the reality. I am not a teacher. You know when I started becoming a teacher? I moved from I am not a teacher to I am a teacher. Even though the earth rea reality was very far off. I get a lot of people say all the time, you teach things I've never heard. I believe I'm anointed to teach. And I'm not saying that properly. I'm saying that I, it's okay to know what you're anointed to do. I, feel, I, I know that I'm anointed to teach the word. I did not start off with proof that I was anointed to teach the word. But when I, people, oh yeah, you're, you're, you're going to be a, a preacher one day. You're going to be a pastor one day. No, 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 I'm, I'm good with that. When I started accepting that call is when I see, started seeing growth in my gift. Stop waiting for God to put it on you and realize he already sees it on you. It's not God will you do it. It's I'm finally going to agree that it's already done. I believe God's called me to evangelist. He's going to take me there one day. No, 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 no. I am an evangelist. 
And when you start to believe that reality, you will start to see the paths that are predestined for you to walk into. You know why you don't see predestined paths? Because you don't think you're worthy to walk them. Gosh, this, I know this is heavy tonight, but... Set your eyes on resurrected you and walk into that reality. Verse 11. In this new creation life, your nationality makes no difference. I'm going to say that one again. And, and I, I ain't going to lie, I got a little nervous about this because there's a lot of multicultural in, in this room, which is beautiful, isn't it? Your nationality makes no difference. Your ethnicity makes no difference. Your education makes no difference. Your economic status makes no difference. They matter nothing. For it is Christ that means everything as he lives in every one of us. I'm going to say something, but I want you to hear my heart before you go crazy. Why are we trying to fix a problem of racism if race doesn't matter? You want to know how to fix racism? Teach people where to set their gaze, and the fix flows from where their eyes are fixated. If people have an issue with nationality, it reveals where their eyes are. Because when our eyes are on heaven, I don't care how rich you are, I don't care how poor you are, I don't care if you're white, you're black, or you're in between. I don't care if you're, you're tan, you're yellow, you're red, you're purple. I, I, I don't care if you've got a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, a doctrine, or you've got a tech degree, or you never went to college. All I care about is what is it that is in you that I'm supposed to see and experience because God has something he wants to do through you that it ain't going to be through me. Set your gaze on heavenly realms, heavenly realities. You want to know why people get overlooked in the church? Because we set our gaze on what they have been proven to do. This church, our mission statement is to see people come alive in Christ. That word Christ means your anointing. See people come alive in your anointing. I, I care less about your scorecard and more about what has not been revealed. Most of the people on this stage that lead worship, when they came here, most, I, actually, I think all of them never had a chance to lead, never had a chance to be in front of people. And now look at them. I believe that anointing that God has put on me is to call out potential in people and see it become a reality. Can I give you a praise report? Starting tomorrow, this worship team is going down to a church down the road their, their pastor just left about uh, last weekend. They're without a pastor. They don't have a worship leader. They don't have anything. And they called us and said, help. We went there this week, and there were singers, and I asked, uh, how many of you are leaders? And they said, they said, none of us. And you know where my mind went to? Not yet. Because <laughs> we don't set our eyes on what has been revealed. We set our eyes on heavenly realms. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
when you fix your eyes on the things of heaven, you begin to produce things of heaven, which brings life to all the dead places. And you cannot produce what in God intended you to produce if you don't change the way you see you according to how God sees you. I've been reading this parable the past three weeks. I'm going to read it one more time. Maybe one more. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. I want to focus on one part of this. Who is the treasure? We are. You are the treasure. Genesis 11.1 1 teaches us a principle in creation that a seed produces after its own kind. An orange seed will produce a what? An orange tree. An apple seed produces an apple tree. Treasure produces. You cannot bring the treasure of heaven here if you don't first accept that you are a resurrected treasure. But what church has taught us is you need to be meek and humble in an inappropriate way. It's a lion with a character of a lamb. Our character needs to be meek and lowly. But how dare you walk into the presence of God and say, I am nothing when he's resurrected you into everything. The proper position in coming to the courts of heaven is not, I'm nothing, God, you're everything. You know what God's response is? Well, if you're nothing, then what did I waste my money on? He purchased you, and it was a high price to get you. It doesn't speak to you being unworthy. He had to die because you cost that much. So it is inappropriate to say, I am not worthy. Yes, you are worthy. You are worthy of God coming as man to die for you to get you back in the proper seated position. You are more than worthy. You are a worthy, identified in the tribe of the Lion of Judah with the character of a lamb. You are treasure without pride. You are a treasure that is humble. And when you start to see you, and your, are your eyes on resurrected you, or are they on dead you? You want to know why you're not producing treasure? Because you keep saying things like, I'll never amount to anything. I'm nothing. I can't do this. I can't do that. When you don't understand how value, valuable you are, you won't produce valuable things. Many wait on God to bring a thing, and I say he has called you to release a thing by way of producing which comes from where you fix your gaze. You have eyes for knowing all that God has for you. Where are they fixed? I'm going to close by proving this whole point out with a story. Genesis chapter 30. Jacob has been working for Laban. He's married into a family, and he brings Laban a request. Don't put it up there yet. He says, let me take my wives. He's got two. That's another sermon. He says, Laban, let me take, y'all focus on here. Y'all got to stop the movement, okay? Let me take my wives, except for Joe. He's good. Let me take my wives and my children and go back to my home. Laban says, sure. How much do I owe you? I'm rich. 
and I'm blessed because of you. Jacob's been working the fields. Laban is, war- is rich because of Jacob. Laban says, I'll pay whatever it is. So Jacob says, don't give me money. Let me look through your flocks and give me all the sheep and the goats that are speckled or spotted and all the black sheep. Speckled, spotted, and all the black sheep. Laban said, okay. So he goes out and he removes all the males that were spotted and all the females that were spotted and all the black sheep and and they were separated from the flock. Now, Jacob's wealth would come from what those flocks produced. The speckled, the spotted, the black sheep. That was where Jacob's wealth was going to come from. He said, I want, I want those so I can start producing my own wealth. Don't pay me. Give, me. give me the means to produce. Okay? So he gets these sheep. But as you know, he can produce more if when the, if the, when the goats mate, they produce not just any kind of goat, but what kind? Speckled, spotted, or black. Because if they would have produced that, that were not speckled, spotted, or black, who would they go to? Laban. Jacob said, I want those. The more speckled or spotted or black that was produced, the more wealthy Jacob would become. The more his wealth would increase because they would be in agreement with what he needed. Now, having known all that, I want to throw up Genesis 30, verse 37 through 43. Then... Jacob took fresh branches from poplar, almond, and plain trees and peeled off strips of bark, making white streaks on them. And then he placed these peeled branches in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink, for that was where they made it. Hold on right there. I want you to notice what he's preparing. He's taking stuff and preparing things as speckled and spotted and streaked. Verse 39, they mated in front of the white street branches and they gave birth to young that were streaked, speckled, and spotted. Jacob separated those lambs from Laban's flock and at mating time he turned the flock to face Laban's animals that were streaked or black. This is how he built his own flock instead of increasing Laban's. Whenever the stronger females were ready to mate, Jacob would place the peeled branches in the watering troughs in front of them. They would mate in front of the branches. Some of you don't know where I'm going with this yet. It's okay. He didn't do this with the weaker ones, so the weaker lands belonged to Laban. The stronger ones were Jacob's. As a result, Jacob became very wealthy with large flocks of sheep and goats, female and male servants, many camels and many donkeys. Here's the key. How did Jacob produce more flocks, more wealth? He put something in front of their eyes. And when the the flocks saw that thing, they produced what their eyes were fixed on. Their gaze, <laughs> their gaze affected what they produced. 
because you produce the thing that you set your eyes on. Many of us are praying for things and asking for things and asking God to let it rain down from heaven. But the key is, you have eyes for knowing that produce. Set your gaze on the right things so that you begin to release the things you need, which are already in heaven. Lord, I need breakthrough. Set your eyes there. Don't come to God as if you're not worthy of breakthrough. When you're praying for breakthrough, you know what you need to set your mind on? Not that you're sick. What do you need to start doing? You need to set your, your gaze on I'm healed so that your prayers are adjusted accordingly. So you no longer start begging for healing, you start thanking him for it. Not God heal me of cancer. If you're praying God heal me of cancer, your eyes are fixated on a fallen non-resurrected you when you start praying God thank you for healing me of this cancer and can I just meddle here for a second if you ever heard someone saying don't name the thing throw that junk away I almost said it throw that junk away and realize that naming a thing that thing has the name of that thing has no more authority than the sound of your voice you say Thank you for healing me of this cancer. Thank you for healing me of this disease. Thank you. You start to thank him because your eyes are fixed on an already healed you. And you know what you start to do? You start producing, just like Jacob's goats produced it. You start producing a version of you that is no longer hindered by the disease that is inflicting you. And before you know it, no matter if they diagnose you or not, you're walking in a heavenly reality of resurrected from that dead place. I, I can tell you from experience, I, I, I have been there and I have done that. I had the brain tumor years ago and they told me it would take six months to get back on playing piano. I was up on stage in three weeks. You want to know why? It wasn't because I was strong. It's because I refused to accept any other reality than I'm healed. Because where I'm weak, he is strong. You want to know how he is strong in your weak places? Adjust your gaze because your eyes are for knowing. Knowing what? Knowing a resurrected you. Knowing a restored you. Knowing the true you. Kyle, you don't know what I've been through in, in my life, but Jesus did, and he's already taken you out of it if you will dare to fix your gaze on that resurrected reality. You have eyes for knowing. Tonight's all to call is simply this. Adjust the gaze. Where you put your eyes to is exactly what you're going to produce. You want to know why God says write the vision down make it plain? So your eyes are already fixed on what is to come. You know what the scripture says? Where there is no vision, the people perish. Why? Because there's nothing to fix your eyes to. It was cool. Yesterday I was, I was with a couple who... They're, they're building this huge winery. And uh, I was talking to the husband, and I said, man, what do you see out here? He said, I don't know. I'm just cutting down trees. But the wife, when you asked what she saw, she could tell you where the cabins were going to be. She could tell you where the winery was going to be. She could tell you where the grapes were going to be. She could tell you where her house was going to be. She, she, I mean, she saw it. You want to know why she's going to be successful in that winery? Because she's already seen it. She's fixed her eye her gaze on it.
I put forth to you tonight. Fix your gaze. Your eyes are for knowing. Knowing the heaven realities that God has already given you. It's not begging. It's producing things that are already there. Amen. Let's stand. Can we give God praise tonight? Lord, I just thank you that you have made it so, I'm just going to say it, you've made it so easy for us. You've purchased it, you've bought it, you've redeemed us. You've seated us in heavenly positions. And God, I, I just pray that every single person in the sound of my voice, including myself, that we would come into agreement and set our eyes on the things that you've already promised and realities that already exist in heavenly places. So as we fix our eyes there, it would be on earth as it already is in heaven. Lord, I thank you that you are not a God who only resides in heaven, but heaven and earth and the, and the in-between, the atmosphere, everything is yours. Lord, let us shift our gaze from a fallen world to the promise of a redeemed one. That we would stop begging to leave it and start managing it as if it was already done. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your power and redemption and love. Let us walk as a resurrected people. It's in Jesus' name, everybody said. Amen.